Welcome to Shakespeare and Pals, episode 17, Romeo and Juliet. It's been a while since one of the masterpieces, it's been a few months since we did Richard III, but yes, we're back, we're back on the classics, baby. Are you happy, Sophie? Like, this was not my favourite when I was doing Shakespeare at school, so, eh. Ah, uh, but is it better than Titus Andronicus? That is the question you must ask yourself. That is a very low bar. I I think it'd be more more appropriate to say, do I like it better than um, Love's Labour's Lost? Because at least, you know, it's a romance story. Um, in which case, it's definitely better than Love's Labour's Lost. I don't, that was meh for me. I still think um, Comedy of Errors is better. Hot take. <laughs> One of the things that I hope we do in this show is to give Shakespeare's lesser-known works not merely a reading, but a kind of compliment, a kind of, you know, you're better than history has said you are. And so, Sophie, you are here to stake your reputation on the line and say that comedy of errors above Romeo and Juliet. Is that right? Is that right, Sophie? In terms of, like, a a, a kind of cute love story? Love yeah, Comedy of Errors is so much better. At the beginning of every episode, I go to the panel, by which I mean this other person, and ask, what is your relationship with this play? And usually, for these early plays, it has been a, I have no relationship with this. But Sophie, from what you have said and from the fact that you do live in the West, I mean, you, now you don't, but you used to, uh, but uh, given the fact that you did used to be schooled in the West. I'm going to assume that there is a scholarly connection to this work. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so I did used to... Part of me wonders if I was given a redacted... No, not redacted, but just like an abridged version because there's a lot of, sh a lot of stuff in here that I don't remember. Specifically, just the sheer talkativeness of the nurse. There's a, there's a lot of fluff in Romeo and Juliet, which I was surprised by. And I'm sure, like, people my age and a little bit older, maybe perhaps a little bit younger, but I think I was one of the last people, generation-wise, to have been forced to watch this, is Romeo and Juliet starring... Um, I don't know who did Juliet, but Romeo was Leonardo DiCaprio as a 20-something-year-old baby-faced boy. And... Um, it was a pretty good movie in that instead of using swords, they were using guns and everyone was wearing Hawaiian shirts. And yes, um, on the matter of the swords, wasn't there that one part was like, get me my sword. And then it's a gun called sword. Yeah, that or, um, and um, give me my rapier. And he was holding like a big uh, shotgun or something. And I'm just like, I like that. This is funny. Yes, but certainly we are getting to... Uh one of Shakespeare's plays that people actually still talk about, that people actually are still forced to read in school. I actually tried to take as many notes as I could on parts that people won't, might not have, like, paid attention to. Um, mostly because ev everyone knows this play, man. Everyone knows this play. So why yeah. are we even bothering? Ah! Oh, we're, for, for, a, for an eclectic weirdo version of the play man how about that yes i suppose there were i 
like the Just King Things podcast, which is the podcast that we sort of base our methodology on of going through a writer's work in chronological order. The uh, way that you start at the beginning and keep on going through it, you're not just looking at The Shining. You're bringing all of his previous novels to bear on The Shining. So just with Romeo and Juliet, we're not like those other literary podcasts that say, oh, let's do a bit of Shakespeare. Let's do a bit of Dickens. Let's look at the greatest. No, we're going from beginning to end and we can bring that context. I'll admit I have not thought of any context for this, but uh, I hope we osmotically bring it in. <laughs> yes. And I will say that it is good. So I mentioned that of the annotations in this edition by the scholar who made this Oxford edition are very extensive. We are also getting to the kinds of his... I have the Shakespeare, the Critical Heritage, a six-volume collection of pre-20th century scholarship on Shakespeare's work. I do like some of the early praise of Romeo and Juliet because it does feel a bit like damning with faint praise, where we have a guy called John Potter in 1771 saying, for though it is far from being the masterpiece of this great author, it has singular merit with respect to plot, characters, incident, language, and moral sentiments. Uh, the catastrophe is affecting, sufficiently dramatic. That is, imagine describe it, that is uh, sufficiently it's sufficiently dramatic. Not not too much. It's not a masterpiece, but sufficiently dramatic. I mean, I would agree that this is definitely not Shakespeare's best, but that's mostly because I'm just so sick of Romeo and Juliet as as a whole concept. But also, this rereading has made me go, okay, there's 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 a little bit more of a darker edge than I had fully appreciated as a grumpy teenager being forced to read this but um that just brings up more questions of was everybody okay kind of situation for me yeah it was a lot of concern as I was reading this one of the things about this play is that there were lots of restoration changes to it there was one there was what were some people were at the end of it they did make some changes to the death scene where Romeo has drunk the poison and then Juliet wakes up and they have one last meeting as he's dying of poison. That was one change made to it. Does that make it more tragic or does that make it parodically tragic? I mean, the the movie did that. So Baz Luhrmann was being more faithful to uh, classical ways of telling the story than people gave him credit for. Yeah, um, and it was, I think I might have laughed when I watched it for the first time. Which... There's Not a level. There's a level of dramatic eye. There's a level of suspense and um, tragedy that just goes into comedy. Yeah, but yeah, no. I think part of me wants to believe that I I just burst out laughing a little bit when that happened. Like, <laughs> and I, th I and there might have been because I went to an all girls school, um, at least for like the second for secondary above, and I I might have gotten a glare either from the teacher or like some some girls around me. I'll admit <laughs> that in my all boys school, the things that happened were quite different. The <laughs> <laughs> part in the Zeffirelli version, you know, the non consensual nude scenes. The teacher paused on that shot and said, "Go on, boys, soak it in, and then we'll move on." Really. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's insane. Oh, it's it's a laddish thing in those schools. Ew, gross. But anyway, moving on. 
another thing, so the changes that were made in the restoration era, one of, as you can expect, one of the changes the restoration sometimes made was giving it a happy ending, giving it a happy ending. But interestingly, one of these people, and this is reported by a guy called John Dowles, this is in 1708, uh, and he's talking about how there was a guy called James Howard who he would play the play one day as a tragedy and then the next day as a tragic comedy with a happy ending. So you didn't quite know what you were going to get when you went to the theatre. Would Romeo and Juliet survive? Would they die? So that's a that's an interesting sort. It's like it's like the film Clue. It's like, oh, which ending are you going to get now? Uh, um, actually, that kind of reminds me. Um, well, maybe we should get into the the play itself before mentioning this. But you said in a previous podcast episode that Romeo and Juliet is a play that starts as a comedy and then ends a tragedy. Yes, I did. It's quite because I, I when I say comedy, I I don't mean like ha 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 ha. I just mean oh, it's like a romantic comedy where it's sort of light, a bit light, but it's like it ends in a marriage. So the first two acts or the first three acts, they the first two acts end in a marriage, and it seems oh, all's right with the world, uh, and then things get terrible. And also, I think at the time, the way they defined, if you look at some early dictionaries from the time, not, you know, not the big dictionary by Samuel Johnson, but early attempts to define specialist words, they say that the difference between a comedy and a tragedy is that in a tragedy, everything starts out good and then things get terrible. But in a comedy, everything starts out bad and then things get good. So in this one, it does seem to start out bad and things get good. They get married. Ah, but then it starts out good with them being married and things go terrible. I have mixed feelings about this, but um, I'll I'll almost get into that. I'll get into that when we actually start the play because I have a theory. <laughs> Act one of Romeo and Juliet. We begin with a sonnet, a sonnet telling us what's going to happen. There's a big grudge between two families. Romeo and Juliet, a star-crossed lover, is going to fall in love, and then they're going to die. And then we begin the play. The first scene is the servants of the Montagues and the Capulets, Romeo and Juliet's families. The servants of the Montagues and Capulets, they get into a street fight together. Now more and more people start coming into this street fight Tybalt of the Capulets of Juliet's family, he also comes in. Benvolio of the Montagues of Romeo's family, he wants to stop this. But this doesn't go well. There's fighting, there's fighting. And then the prince comes in and says, stop fighting. If I catch any of you fighting again, I'm going to kill whoever makes this into a bloodbath again. I'm going to commit to execution. That sets up the violent inter-house rivalry. Ah, but where's Romeo? Romeo's being a little sad boy over by that tree because he's in love with a girl and she doesn't love him back. Aww. And apparent, and Benvolio says, come on, man, come on, man. You know what you need, man. You need another girl, man. Forget about Rosalind. Come, come to a party with me. And it turns out that this party is a party being thrown by the Capulet family, by Juliet's family, by the enemy family. And... Romeo and his friends, they sneak into this party. But who does Romeo meet there? Ah, it's Juliet. He meets Juliet. And it's only at the end of this scene of their amazing first meeting that they realize shock and horror that 
Romeo's from the Montagues and Juliet's from the Capulets. And they realize, oh, this is going to be a bit more difficult than we thought it was going to be. Did I leave anything out, Sophie? For me, it feels like nothing much happens because there's a fight. There's um, people being invited to a party. Okay, so for me, I've basically noted each um, scene as act one, one, the scene is set. Two, we go to the Capulets and Paris. Three, we meet Juliet. Four, before the fateful party. Scene five, at the fateful party. Roughly one or one and a half things happen per scene. If we want to like dig a bit deeper into this, let's dig a bit deeper into that first fight scene. Like that first fight scene is doing a lot of work because it is setting up the fight between the Montagues and the Capulets, but it's between servants. It's not between the, you know, the higher up noble members. It's between servants who speak in prose and who make dirty jokes to each other. So Shakespeare, and this is also in contrast to the opening sonnet. Now that's a sonnet. And these people are just speaking like regular street peoples insulting each other. So Shakespeare's really preventing us from taking this as anything but a street fight. Yeah, no, I agree that the street fight is actually doing a lot of work. And um, Benvolio and Tybalt's personalities are made very clear with their very brief interaction. Like that, that two, four lines is doing a lot of heavy lifting. But before we get into that, can I just briefly talk about the prologue in that? It's the first one in all of Shakespeare's plays, isn't it? Where he has a chorus with quotation marks implied doing a prologue? I think so. This is one of those opening things that I remember that if if you find, let's say, teenagers talking about this play, they'll say, oh, why is Shakespeare spoiling the ending? He's spoiling the ending. But why would he do that? And I do feel that this does perform a very important function, which is by reminding us that these characters are going to die that they, it is confirming to us that this is a tragedy. And part of what makes a tragedy is, you know, you know in, a, in a story with a happy ending, what makes the happy ending feel happy is that, oh, it seemed like everything was lost. Oh, there was the darkest night. Oh, and then they managed to get out of that trap. In a tragedy, it's the exact opposite. What makes the tragic ending really tragic is the hope that at some point it does seem like, oh, they're going to succeed. Oh, no, now they're failing. So I like that this ending of it is like it, it, this beginning, the prologue is saying they are going to die. This isn't going to end happily, which makes all the little moments of hope throughout all the little moments of, oh, it seems like they're going to be fine. Oh, it seems. Oh, no. No, we know at the back of our minds that this isn't going to go well. And I feel, I, I'm wondering if this prologue was added later, because as you said, it's a comedy that ends as a tragedy. And I wonder if there was enough people that were like, I feel tricked. I mean, I thought eventually we'd have a happy ending, but we didn't, and I'm super upset. Might have prompted this prologue to come in a little bit later. So maybe it didn't... really emphasizing to them, look, you get what you pay for. Yeah, no, you're. this is definitely going to end hap- badly, and I want you to brace yourselves that this will end badly. Because it kind of does... Act 1, Scene 1, the scene is set, the... The childishness of this um, feud is made very apparent very quickly, like it always does. Um, Shakespeare definitely has a very on-the-nose opening to every single play that he's done so far, especially um, with Titus Andronicus going with um, 
bad boy Saturninus going, do as I say, while his brother is, you know, being a benevolent dude, um, you have two idiots, basically, going, eh, let's, shall I provoke those guys, the guys in the opposite faction? And they do, but they do it badly, like, in a, it's like, oh, you bite my thumb at me? And he's like, no, I'm just, I'm just biting my thumb. And is this done in a cheeky way or is this done in a cowardly way? I would lean towards cowardly because then higher ups are coming closer and then they go, yeah, no, I, I, I work for a better dude than you, not as equally good as you. Um, and then the fight starts. I like how Benvolio's name is very on the nose as well. Benevolent Benvolio. I do but keep the peace. Put up thy sword or manage it to part these men with me. Tybilt or Tybilt, um, T-Y, Tyrant, uh, not sure what else to play with that name. <laughs> so, what drawn in talk of peace? I hate the word as I hate hell, all Montagues and thee, have at thee, coward. And Tybilt's, those three lines, they do a lot of work because before it was a little jokesy, a little dumb that they were fighting because as I said, childish. They were just one-upping each other, and it, it ex escalated out of um, showmanship for the higher-ups coming along. And Benvolio is like, all right, let's 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 stop this. Let's stop this shenanigans. And Tybalt's like, bruh, I'ma murder you. I'ma kill you. And it gets worse. And then enter citizens with clubs going, please, for the love of God, leave us alone. Take your Take your fights indoors. Shakespeare, get it out of the public. Shakespeare does get across how look, it doesn't matter how these things start. They always go out of control where anything that happens during these things is taken as a justification for continuing it. Like Benvolio says, put up thy sword or manage it to part these men with me. And then Tybalt said, what? Drawn and talk of peace? I So he's basically saying here that, so Benvolio is saying, look, let's stop the fight. But Tybalt is saying, you have a sword up, that means you are aggressing. Therefore, I am justified in aggressing against you. And so there, and then the citizens come with their clubs. Okay, so you're fighting, so we should try to fight to stop you. And so it just naturally goes out of all control. But also, like you were mentioning how that, that the opening thing with Samson, Gregory, these servants going with each other, how it can be played comedically. And certainly it can be played comedically. There's a lot of frankly, just jokes in general in this opening scene. You could do it with a sort of Sergio Leone kind of tension, where it is, you know there's going to be violence, all these men who just really want to fight each other, but none of them want to be the one who throws the first blow, because that makes them legally liable. They want the other person to fight. They don't even want to be the ones who do the fighting words. Ah, so he says, let us take the law of our, our, let us, so Samson says, let us take the law of our sides. Let them begin. And Gregory says, I will frown as I pass by and let them take it as they list. Nay, and I, so basically he's saying, I'm not going to say anything that would directly make them fight us. I'm not going to say fight us. I'm going to just frown and let's hope that they get angry and start attacking us and then we'll be justified in attacking them. And then it's like, do you quarrel? So then it says, Samson says, no, sir, I do not bite my thumb as you, sir, but I bite my thumb, sir. So it's like, no, 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 don't. I'm not insulting you. But if you take it as an insult, are you going to are you going to make this worth my while? Are you going to punch me, sir, so that I can punch you back? Come on, come on. So it, it does have a Sergio Leone thing where the tension is in. Oh, we know there's going to be a fight. But when? 
when is it going to burst out? It burst out pretty quick. <laughs> On the note of them being childish, there's one moment where, you know, so the, the Montague and Capulet, these are old men, like Capulet, I think he comes out, he's saying, get my sword, get my sword. And, the, and his wife is saying, no, get your crutch, you old man, get your crutch. Uh, but there is where the prince comes in. And this might be a very modern metaphor. I don't know how, but he does feel like a principal coming in and saying, you, all of you, break it up, break it up. And you, Montague, and you, Cap, you come to my office. You come to my office right away. So, like, the prince comes in, three civil brawls, bred of an airy word. For this time, all the rest depart away. You, Capulet, shall go along with me. And Montague, come you this afternoon to know our father pleasure in this case, to old Freetown, our common judgment place. So it's like, come on, come to my office, boys. Come to, I, I'll have a word with you. I'll have a word with you separately, boys. I don't know how Elizabethan schools work, but I do hope that there's something in this. And this is sort of how maybe they worked. It is very interesting that um, Capulet, okay, it, it is a, I'm referencing a moment um, much a little bit later in the play, but Capulet seems to have had other kids. He does and... say that all my, all my other hopes are buried or something like that. Yeah, which means to imply that he has, he might have had um, other family members or maybe even kids who have passed away might be because of um, illness, just because child mortality rates are pretty high in the in the ancient times. But um, it could have been before the feud, which actually, no, I don't think it was for the feud that the children died, because it feels a little silly for Romeo and Juliet, the play, to exist if Capulet had lost children to the feud beforehand, because why didn't their deaths end the feud, you know? Um, I think... Romeo and Juliet, the what makes their death be what makes their death be ending of the feud is that they got together, they loved each other. Whereas if it's if it's just some other child that's died that had nothing to do with the hands across the aisle moment, then it's just a child dying. That's just more fuel for the fire. Yeah, that's true if you put it that way. Um Speaking of our children, though, I would um, say that on the matter of uh, you know him saying all my hopes are buried other than her. It does really get across that it does make the stakes of Juliet's marriage more important because the, the, the blood feud, it's about family. It's about my family is better than yours. And what is more important in a family than having a next generation and having a next generation after that? So really, Juliet's marriage matters a whole lot. And also, he's an old man, so maybe he and his wife were a bit past it in terms of child rearing and child bearing. So maybe this is their last hope, Juliet. Uh, but uh, Juliet, it, it does. There's no other sister to marry anyone. There's no other son to have children. It's just her. So that makes it a bit more tense. Like, oh, will they ever allow her to marry against their wishes? I do find it funny. Um, it's this is a little bit um, in scene two. Should we just move on to scene two? Oh, most certainly. Okay, I will. I'm just going to briefly mention scene one, Montague. Many a morning hath there been seen with tears augmenting the fresh morning dew. Montague describes his son really cutely, and I find that a little bit weird. I <laughs> or... will say that when, when at least one of my, my professors, my, my Shakespeare professor, who is one of those people who likes to, of that generation of Shakespeare scholar, who likes to find someone very radical in Shakespeare, he viewed this as... The Romeo and Juliet, Romeo is being 
quite a feminine guy in like in a way that Shakespeare is supporting, and Juliet as being a relatively masculine girl in a good way, such that they sort of meet in the middle, where Romeo is this incredibly emotional sort of guy. He's crying all the time. And even when he grows a backbone and start he he walk later on in the play, he walks into the fight between Tybalt and Mercutio. And he, he's not a coward. But he goes in like a pacifist, like a Jesus Christ figure saying, no, 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 don't fight each other. So he's brave enough to go in, but he's not like Benvolu. He's not bringing out a sword and saying, don't don't fight each other. I've got a sword. Don't fight each other. No, he's with utter, you know, peace loving serenity. He goes in between them and says, stop. So there is something a bit passive or a bit. uh, And also, you know, his emotions here. There is something a bit feminine about him in a good way. I just found it interesting that Montague describes his son like a mother would describe his son, if you know what I mean. It's like, um, usually I feel like a, a father would be like, oh yeah, my son, he's good at fishing, he's a good swordsman, like, um, you know, just be interested more in the patriarchal kind of um, charm points, as the Japanese would call them, while the, well, the mother would be like, oh, you know, he, my boy is so handsome, he's very cute. Yeah, no, just Montague is, depending on how this paragraph of Montague going, my son, he's shut up in his room and just cries very beautifully, but still cries. And I'm just going, is this done with great scorn or instead of concern? Like, what is up? What's up here? I'd say that Montague, in this play, Montagues come off better because they sort of fall out of the story. The, the elder Montagues, they don't really show up anymore after this scene. It's the Capulets. Yeah. We see them in their arseholes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. On the note, I think we should sort of dwell a bit on Romeo's lovesickness because there's something I noticed this time. Like we noticed at the beginning that Romeo, he, he's not, he's pining after a girl called Rosalind. A Rosalind who see either, I think maybe she's become a nun or maybe she just doesn't want to go with any guy like him. But, you know, he wants her, she doesn't want him. And... What I noticed this time was that we don't actually hear her name for a while. So this leads me to think that maybe Shakespeare is trying to do a bait and switch with the audience. That the audience may be thinking, oh, he's... We, we, they haven't heard the name, but they're thinking, oh, this Romeo. Well, this is a play called Romeo and Juliet. At the beginning, we heard that, oh, he is in love with Juliet. So this girl that he's pining after, that's going to be Juliet. Uh, but then... It's a twist when we hear, oh, Rosalind's going to be at the party. And the audience, wait, what? What? It's not Juliet he's pining over? And maybe this is there to uh, sort of make them question Romeo's love. Because they thought that he was pining after Juliet, this deep outpouring of love. But then it turns out that actually... uh, his love uh, changes very swiftly, that they know that he's not going to love this girl for long. Uh, maybe it's meant to make them view his love in general as being a bit suspect. Yeah, because I usually listen to these um, first on Audible. I was like, wait, when does actually Romeo say Rosaline's name first? And listening to it, I, I was just struggling to find it because it's the actor that was doing Romeo says her name with such longing during the listing in um, scene Yeah, that four? is one of the 
just on a plot plot note that the reason why Romeo and his friends go to the Capulets' party, you know, as Montagues, they're not going to be invited. They go there because Capulet says, "You there, you there, my servant, go and invite the people on this list." And he doesn't account for the fact that this servant doesn't know how to read. So that servant just goes to Romeo and says, "Read this list for me, sir. I don't know who you are, but can you read this list for me?" And then Romeo says, "Ah, this is a party at the Mon- at the Capulets. Oh, and Rosalind's going to be there." Yeah, and um, and after that, and actually, even when I was reading and taking notes, I was using opensourcesexpeareorg slash views plays play uh, Romeo Juliet, etc. And I just control F Rosaline's name. The first time it's ever mentioned, Benvolio says her name first. So to be honest, we're not even sure if Romeo actually is in love with her. It is. It is certainly. I'm going to give Shakespeare the benefit of the doubt and assume that this is a conscious choice on his part, that there is meaning behind it rather than him doing a first draft and saying, oh, there's no place before this point where I can fit the name Rosalind into the meter. Oh, I, I forgot to mention her name. Yeah, no, I think it's, it is definitely a deliberate choice. Do we want to get on to... We've been speaking for a while about this. Do we want to get to the party scene? The party scene? Yes, um, but before we get to the party scene... Act 1-4, before the fateful party, we meet Mercutio, and it's a bit of a waste in my mind that his beautiful monologue um, basically exists to neg Romeo. Like, genuinely lovely, goth Lolita, Art Nouveau-level imagery, dedicated to Queen Mab, and it's because he's running out of patience for Romeo's, like, whinge fist. I'd say, on the note of Mercutio, like, Mercutio, he's, like, a very famous character. He's the character who famously says a plague on both your houses, and he comes here like, as you say, a goth-leader kind of guy, a kind of um, airy, a kind of uh, mischievous trickster figure. And so, you know, the audience likes him. They think, oh, this guy, he's too zany to care much about the war between the Montagues and the Capulets. But then, when we get to the fight between him and Tybalt, it's Mercutio who starts that fight. He's the one who just goes up to Tibble and says, oh, come on, you are, so let's fight each other. So that comes as a bit of a shock. That, oh, this clown guy, this sort of wise, funny, zany clown guy, he's also poisoned by this battle mentality of these two houses. That came as a shock to me reading it this time. I think also Mercutio's level had, had just been sapped of patience like these last few nights because his friend is being so annoying. And Tybalt clearly is a massive asshole. And just having that and probably some other things just going on in his life as a character, as a fictional character, just makes him snap and go, I'm done. I'm done. But yeah, yes, you're is, right. This is a person that I that is socially acceptable for me to beat up. <laughs> this is a person this is a person that deserves a bit of a pushback. Because it's Tybalt, and Tybalt is not a fun person. A guy, a Tybalt, a guy who was so awful that even after his death, most of his family members seem to think it's been a few hours since he died. It's too, it's too grieving now. Will be too much. We should just put him in his grave and forget about him. <laughs> Maybe there's a more psychologically complex reason for that, but it did strike me this time that. Just a few hours after his death, people are saying, "Stop! Forget about him. Forget about him, Juliet. Don't think about him." He's not worth remembering. <laughs> but yes, I really think we should get on to the, the actual party, the, the first meeting of Romeo and Juliet. And I just, one of the things that struck me this time is that this is a mask. This is 
well, actually, the, one of the lines that uh, confirms that this is a mask is actually a surprisingly resonant line. Let me find it. Um, ah, so it is Capulet. He's introducing the party. And he says, I have seen the day that I have worn a visor and could tell a whispering tale in a fair lady's ear, such as would please. Tis gone, tis gone, tis gone. So th- it's this, this old man is up there, and it's really emphasizing that, oh, I had youth once, and now that youth is gone. I used to be one of you young people dancing with ladies, and now I'm an old guy. And it's sort of just like the line about all my hopes but her are buried. It's getting across... I'm going to die soon, and I do need to make sure that the next generation is okay. It is getting that I need to set my affairs in order. I am old. That's a good, it's a resonant line, at least. Yeah. But, um, mm-hmm. I, it didn't strike me that way, mostly because the Archangel recording of it was delivered in, in a very jovial way. Oh, it's been ages since, um, you know, I, I could woo a lady visor through visor. But, you know, have fun, have fun. Like, it was that kind of vibe. So, like, it does feel like like there is a little bit of a. It's it's like those things where it's like. There was that Billy Connolly Connolly thing where he was telling a joke and he's being jovial, but then he goes a bit too deep into his own memories and he starts crying. So, I do feel it's like that, that he's saying, Oh, I remember my youth, my charming youth. Tis gone, tis gone, tis gone. Uh, you're welcome, gentlemen. Please come, musicians, play. Oh, God, I, I remember too much there. I got, went too deep into my own mind. Oh, God. It's like he, he's, he's getting a bit depressed and then he has to, he, he's, he intends us to be happy. Then he gets a bit sad thinking about that he's now he's old. But then he has yeah. to be a bit happy. But then he has to put on a bright face to stop thinking about that. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, why, why, how, why and how does Tybalt recognize? Is that, it is an interesting Romeo? thing. Which is, it is masks, and this does create some problems for Shakespeare. I do believe there is a very important reason, a very important thematic reason why this is a mask, rather than just seeing people's faces. I mean, for one, you don't, if a Montagues are going to show up without masks, then they're going to say, kick them out, we don't want them in here. But also, uh, I mean, but let's get into what Tybalt says, which is that he recognises them by their voices. And Juliet also, later on, during the balcony scene, she recognises that Romeo is a Montague by his voice, which how is it like that this family, maybe maybe the idea is that one of these families came from a different Italian city years ago and they have a slightly different accent or something like that. What? How old is Romeo? Do we know? We, I think we do know that um, we don't, I've, maybe there's one specific line saying it, but we do know that in we can do some simple math because we know in the original story, it's something like Juliet is 16 and Romeo is 18 or something like that. Whereas in this version of the story, Shakespeare explicitly makes Juliet three years younger. So she is 13 in this one. Uh, yeah. where, whereas, so doing that math, we can assume that Romeo may be 15, 14 or something. Yeah. Is this what I find? Um, so when Tybalt says, that's goddamn Romeo, we can't we kick him out, uncle? Um, Capulet says, content thee, gentle cuz, let him alone. He bears him like a portly gentleman. Portly gentleman. Um, and to say truth, Verona brags of him to be a virtuous and well-governed youth. I would not for the wealth of all the town here in my house do him disparagement. Therefore, be patient, take no note of him. It is my will, the which of... If thou respect, show a fair presence and put off these frowns and ill-beseeming semblance for a feast. 
just to note that one thing, it does on the note of, you know, tragedy being made more tragic because there is the hope of things going right. This one bit by Capriot, it does make you think, oh, maybe the romance will work. He likes Romeo. Maybe, maybe he's, ah, we know this is going to end badly. Yeah. But yeah, and, um, and Capulet, he shall be endured when Tybalt um, says, no, I won't endure him. He's not our guest. He's like, what, God, Goodman boy? I say he shall. Go to, am I the master here? Or you, go to. You'll not endure him. God shall mend my soul. You'll make a mutiny among my guests. You will set a cockahoop. You'll be the man. And... He does have rage issues, Capulet. He, oh, yeah, Capulet definitely has rage issues when it, when it comes to disobedience. On the note, I think we should actually get to specifically Juliet and Romeo's first meeting here. <laughs> uh, and I was mentioning how I think that the mask is here for a very good reason, which is that, I mean, a lot of people would say, oh, this is love at first sight, except it's not really. I mean, it, it, they are. this is them first meeting and them falling in love, except because of the mask. You know, Romeo, he's saying, oh, how beautiful she is, oh, how amazing. He can't actually see her. So Romeo can't actually see Juliet and Juliet can't actually see him. So and also later on during the famous balcony scene, it is night. And so a candle can't really light things up that much. So it's also dark. So they can't really see each other. Now, this makes me think that this is implying in a sort of, you know, non-realist way, in a sort of fable, fairy tale like way, in a symbolic way, that this is implying that their love is something more than physical. They can't see each other. They are not loving the physical out of form. They are seeing something perhaps mystically deeper. And this contrasts Romeo's love for Rosalind, where let's I think there's one line which sort of gets at the sort of uh, very teenage places that his mind is going. He doesn't directly say that what he's in, what he wants for this is, you know, her body. But he does say, he will not stay the siege of loving terms, nor by the encounter of assailing eyes, nor ope her lap to saint seducing gold. So the fact that that image comes to his mind of her opening her lap, that does imply certain elements of what he wants from Rosalie. But with Juliet, they can't see each other. So he is not being drawn by physical love here, which perhaps allows this the, their love story to be a bit more than, you know, hormo hormonal teenager things. I do think that this is meant to show their love is something deeper than that. I find that a little bit doubtful, considering they go almost straight to kisses, um, I, which I, seems I, like a very wild thing to do. I mean, um, it is, uh, I, I'd say that let's, uh, with this play, I'd say definitely we can't read it, at, at my reading at least, requires that we don't read it as being a realist play. It's not a realist play. It's, it is halfway between naturalism and fairy tale. Yeah, no, that's fair. And going with your um, interpretation, you kiss by the book is what Juliet says. Um, they use really biblical terms. Have not saints' lips and holy palmers too? I pilgrim lips that they must use in prayer. Oh then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. They pray, grant thou, lest faith turn to despair. Thus from my lips by yours my sin is purged. Then have my lips the sin that they have took. And it's just like, oh, it's, it's so romantic and I hate it. Ugh. You hate that your maiden heart is fluttering forward, it's so good. Mm. I do, I do like it because, I mean, 
there's certain aspects of gender politics of the day that it, of Shakespeare's day that define how Juliet is reacting. Like that, I think there was that line in Richard the Third was like, "You shall play the maid." When you know he's saying to Richard the Third, "When I present to you this crown, you must play the maiden's part and say no while all the while you want it." Uh, so yes, that's not really a good way. That's not really an efficient or good way of approaching romantic relations, where the woman is meant to say no, 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 while secretly wanting it. Uh, that's a but. I do feel that you know Juliet, in order for the audience to see her as being you know a good chaste lady, she has to put up some resistance to Romeo. Uh, but you know, saints do not move though Grant's prayer safely saying, "Don't no, let's not do this." But it is one of those things where it's the flirtatious no. Which again, not a good, not a good thing to take into your dating life. But you know, in this play, that's at 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 play here. But you know, as she's saying, "Oh no, oh no," but secretly, yes, oh no, oh no. It does end with her saying, "You kiss by the book." Now that that's a little bit of teasing, like, "Oh, you kiss, you you don't kiss well. You kiss like someone who's learned to do it in a book." Uh, it is that bit of teasing says, "Oh no, I actually want this. Oh no, I, I, we can have fun together here." So I do find that's a very nice little moment that uh, lets her say, yes, I want this, but in a kind of a cute sort of playful way, but in a way that lets her keep her you know, reputation for chastity. Yeah, no, I actually agree with that. Act two. Ah, we're getting to the end of the comedy section of this play. The part that ends all happily with marriage. If you want a happy ending, close the book right now. We get the famous balcony scene. Romeo and Juliet, they meet each other. Romeo saying, hello, Juliet, let down your hair. Not quite, but that would have made it even better, Sophie, wouldn't it? That would have been quite funny. That would have made my night. But they love each other so much and they know they love each other. That's whether you take this as being hormonal teenagers or fairy tale love. That depends on how much the world has kicked you around, I suppose, Sophie. But <laughs> what we have is that they love each other and they say, oh, we can't spend too much time together. Romeo, I'll send a messenger to you tomorrow. Wait for my messenger. And so Romeo, he goes to his friend who is for some reason a friar called Friar Lawrence. He's a good Christian boy, our Romeo. And he's friends with this friar, and the friar says, look, Romeo, I don't buy these things you're saying about being in love with this new girl, because, you know, you were so in love with Rosaline, so I don't quite believe you. But, and here's my galaxy brain take on this, Romeo, I think that if you get married to Juliet, then you could put an end to this ancient grudge. That's why I'm going to help you. This will be a running theme with the friar, that he is just a bit too uh, tricky in his thinking. He likes to plan a bit too much. Romeo and the nurse meet to arrange a marriage. The nurse reveals marriage plans to Juliet, and then the ending, Romeo and Juliet, they marry. And I think it's an important point to note that they do not consummate their marriage immediately. This is going to start editorialising right now, but I do think that in order to emphasise that their marriage is not just hormonal teenagers wanting to get at each other. It is uh, made incredibly clear that, so Tybalt is dead and Juliet is still saying that, oh, I, we have not consummated our marriage, we are still virgins. So they do not get together immediately. I do feel that's important. So this isn't just them wanting each other's bodies, they are marrying each other for proper reasons of love. For true love. 
I am emphasizing this because there is uh, there. I'll say that I am at the stage of reading this play where I am the reaction to the reaction. Where the first stage of this play is, oh, it's a love story. It's the greatest love story ever. And then there's the very easy fight back against that, which is like, oh, no, it's just hormonal teenage. Oh, no, it's not love. Oh, no, it's just uh, it's mocking their love. There's that. I am at the stage where I'm reacting against that reaction and sort of coming back to a more sophisticated version of the initial view that this is a love story. Yeah, it is, in fact, a love story. A tragic love story, nonetheless. But did I miss anything there? <laughs> um, I don't think so. Because I some after a certain point, I do forget some places are in like Act Three when really it's in Act Two. And yeah, it is. It is sort of striking. Oh, this is happening all very quickly. I would have thought this happened later on, but no, it is happening just right here. Which scene shall we talk about first? The first one. I assume we shall talk about the balcony scene. Apparently, in a very early folio edition of Shakespeare there was one foot there was one like annotation that said and this balcony scene is the quote most thumbed of all that's kind of cute it's one of it's it's so famous that in the real Verona like there was there was no balcony there is no real balcony this is a fake story about fake people but it's it's one of those things where if you go to Verona there'll be a few places that say oh this this right this is Juliet's balcony tourists come here and see Juliet's balcony uh, Romeo and Juliet, and again, as I said in the previous act, it is right now very dark. It's night. There's no, and also, you know, Juliet probably doesn't want anyone to say, "Oh, what's she doing over there? What's she looking at?" So she's going to keep it dark, so they can't really see each other. So again, it's not physical their love. It's it's they're they're talking to each other. They're exchange. What is what are words? But the insemination of the mind. What are words? But weapons mightier than the sword. <laughs> If only that worked out for them this it, way. It reminds me of something that Plato said in the Symposium, listeners, listeners, uh, where he said that, you know, in love, in regular common love, people, they try to have babies together. But in higher love, it's like philosophy. I try to put thought babies in your head with my words. And that's why he was a simp for Athena. We get so, you know, they're, they're having that famous, lovely talk to each other. And they're having that. And this is when I... There's that famous part, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo, why are you Romeo? That talk of, you know, a rose by any other name will be just as sweet. And the, the surface reading of that that most people take away is, is her just saying, oh, how silly it is about this, this war between us. Oh, it's just a name. It's just a label. But it does come off a bit as sophistry, a bit as wishful thinking here. Because, of course, it isn't just a name. It is, uh, it is their entire family. Like, it is, it is not that he is Romeo, it is that he is a Montague. And she does get this across at the beginning where she says, O Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. So deny thy father, that's a bit more than um, just being a label that he happens to have. He's saying, get rid of your family. And she also says, oh, or I will say, uh, or if thou wilt not be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer a Capulet. So they're emphasizing this is family. And also, like, she, she does say that that famous line, what's a Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell just as sweet. Except, of course, Montague is a family name. He was given birth by that family. So every part of him, his arms, his legs, his very biology is defined by the Montagues. So she, 
this does feel like her desperately trying to wishful think her way out of this inconvenient fact that their families hate each other. This is more than just words they're talking about here. And um, although he does also reply by saying, I take thee at thy word. Call me but love and I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I never will be Romeo. So, what man art thou that thus was screamed in night, so stumblest on my counsel? By a name. I know not how to tell thee who I am. My name, dear saint, is hateful to myself because it is an enemy to thee. Had I it written, I would tear the word. My ears have not yet drunk a hundred words of thy tongue's uttering, yet I know the sound. Art thou not Romeo and a Montague? So again, she has emphasised that you, you are Romeo, you are a Montague. And they want to try to forget that there is terrible, would-be terrible opposition to their marriage. On that note, on the note of opposition to their marriage, reading it this time, it did occur to me that it's not actually, their marriage does not directly lead to any of the tragedy. Up until the very, very end, no one other than them and Friar Lawrence knows or the nurse. None of the Capulets, none of the Montagues, Paris, Tibbot, none of them know that they are married. It's all indirect consequences of it. Uh, it's arguable even whether it's even the indirect consequence of their marriage. It, it struck me that in this play about, oh, forbidden love, it isn't the forbidden love that causes the tragedy. Yeah, yeah if, actually, if, if you put it that way, that is definitely true, because the only stickling, sticking point about the marriage would be that she is already married and therefore cannot marry another man, or else uh, that would be what? Part of me wants to say buggery. Bigamy. Um, Bigamy. Yes. It was a B-I-G word. That reminds me of that old joke. It's like, I'm married to two women. That's, that's, that's bigger me. Bigger you. No, it's bigger me. God, that's terrible. <laughs> that's so terrible. I hate it. It's a great joke. It's a classic. Yes, it does sound like one. But anyway, um, so... The only and the two people who would know that would be bigamy would is actually no big gammy, no yeah bigger yeah gammy means marriage okay yeah. <laughs> because I remember that because of intar it's like you're a misogamist I'm not a misogynist no misogamy it means hatred of marriage you idiot <laughs> <laughs> that's very cute um part of me wants to say like isn't that also ref um, referring to like um a Ganymede um but I was like wait that that might be a different kind of that's a guy's name, let's say. Uh, yeah. A young, beautiful boy who is uh, Zeus's boy toy. Perhaps Peter yeah, Phillips' boy toy, let's not go into that. Uh. <laughs> yeah, another tangent, but anyway. Yeah, so Juliet knows that it's bigamy and therefore she shouldn't be doing it. And the priest knows that it's bigamy because he's the one that ordained the first marriage in the first place. Shall we so talk about like, the priest? Because I did mention before that he he is a guy who's a bit too galaxy brain. That you could argue that he is sort of the, where all of these problems come from. He's, he's a guy a, who, who needs a plan. He's, the, he's, he, he goes with the marriage because he says, look, I don't believe in your love, but maybe this will be the way that we can uh, stop this fighting between the families. And he says that, okay, Juliet, I know you're going to get in the next act. He's like, Juliet, I know you're going to get married to him. But uh, we can't reveal this. End. We can't just be direct and say that you're already married. Let's fake your death. Let's fake your death. He, he, <laughs> all these plans with too many variables. And of course, yeah, he, he puts in too many avenues for failure. It's like, I'll, it's like you'll, you'll pretend to be dead. I'll send a letter to Romeo and I'll stay here with you until you wake up. 
and then the three of us, once we're all good, send you back to wherever Romeo is vanished. And, and even at the very end, he can't help, like, Romeo has killed himself at the end, and she is alive. Oh, no, there's Romeo. And then the friar says, oh, God, oh, God, what's that? Okay, Juliet, Juliet, I'm going to put you in an anonymy. We'll hide you in an anonymy, Juliet. He can't even stop planning then. He can't even say, okay, look, let's cut our losses and just reveal this to people. Uh, it does feel, I mean, it does feel like he's trying to cover his ass. Like, he, I, yeah. I, got us into this. I don't want anyone to know. If we want to be absolutely, give him the benefit of the doubt... Maybe the idea is that he knows that Capulet is... He's one of those fathers and one of those uh, heads of the household who can't control his anger, who will, you know, start beating and even killing people if you make him too angry. So maybe the idea is we can't tell him the truth because maybe he'll kill Juliet. Uh, maybe that is the implication, to give him the absolute benefit of the doubt. I mean, like, already um, Capulet had threatened her with, you know, banishment, just straight up... Um, disownment, in which case she wouldn't have had an income from her family and just, you know, basically died in the streets. So she was either going to face that or being beaten to death by her father, or in which case the friar going, let's, let's take you to a nunnery. Let's just keep you out of here because this is wild stuff we're doing already. So yeah, let's just, just do one more step, one more step. It's fine. Um, although. I think, to a point, he... The galaxy brain, let's just pretend you're dead, kind of makes sense with my little head cannon that is slightly um, justified by a most recent um, trailer I saw, or tra not, maybe it was just like a part for um, a recent Juliet movie, Romeo and Juliet movie, or a Romeo and Juliet play that was televised or released on YouTube or whatever. I think it's starred Tilda Swinton or could it be that one? Is this it? Okay, no. The point of the point of this um of this tangent is that in the clip, Lady Capulet straight up slaps Juliet. And um Juliet is not okay. Juliet is not okay at all. On the, when you say not okay, do you mean she's sort of a bit odd in the head or do you mean that uh, she is in a very bad situation? Um, very bad situation because she is the one that says, um, or maybe it's just the way that it was delivered, but, um, when does she say counsel me to, um, her nurse? It is in, okay, it's in act three, scene five. So it's a lot later, but, um, Lady Capulet says, talk not to me for I'll not speak a word. Do as thou wilt for I have done with thee. And Juliet says, oh God, oh nurse, how shall this be prevented? Unless, da, 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 comfort me, counsel me, alack, alack, that heaven should practice stratagems upon so soft a subject as myself. What says thou? Hast thou not a word of joy? Some comfort, nurse. Like, she really does not know what to do. And, and it's made all the more. Because I, Shakespeare does intentionally make her three years younger than she was in the original story. He's made her like even more fragile and uh, vulnerable to the world as like a 13-year-old girl. Yeah, she doesn't know what she's going to do. She has potentially nowhere to go. If she lets this happen, she is going to be committing a crime basically against God. And she's just a kid? And immediately afterwards, as soon as she meets up with the friar, she's like, I will end myself. I refuse to exist 
in this much misery. And Fries basically says, no, 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 no. We, we don't need that. We don't need that. We're just... But also, don't down. dare tell anyone about this. We need to use one of my plans. Yeah, don't tell anyone, but I have an idea, which is that you pretend to off yourself. I have a cunning Ooh. plan, my lord. I have a cunning plan. And even and when she's taking it, um, she, she does say, is this potentially really poison? And Friar Lawrence is basically getting rid of me, so his mistakes, his actions are covered up. And she has a lot of fears about it, but she takes it anyway. And that is, um, that's a red flag, my dude. <laughs> we have been, uh, we are technically talking about Act 2, but we've been jumping about a bit because yeah. I will say that Act 2, it is just get setting things up. It is just setting up their marriage, rushing through their marriage. Yeah, Act 2 is all like, hey, we're in love. And Romeo's like, hey, Friar Lawrence, I'm in love. And Friar Lawrence's like, yeah, sure you are, like you last week and the week before that. No, I'm really getting married. I want to get married. Fine. Mercutio is, Mercutio is so upset. Every note I have about Mercutio basically amounts to, he's so mad, lol. He's done. Um, mocking Tybalt. We were setting up his hatred of Tybalt. He's like, oh, he's one of those guys who uses fancy Italian fencing. He's not like a real street fighter like me. Yeah, but um, even before Tybalt um, enters the picture, Act 2, Scene 4, enter Romeo, probably after the marriage. Benvolio, here comes Romeo. Here comes Romeo! Mercutio, without his roe, like a dried herring, flesh, flesh, how art thou fishified? Now is he for the numbers the Petrarch flowed in. Laura to his lady was but a kitchen wench. Mary, she had a bit of love to be rhyme her. Dido a dowdy. Helen and Hero, Hildings and harlots. There's be a grey eye or so, but not to the purpose. Signor Romeo, bonjour. There's a French salutation to your French slop. You gave us the counterfeit fairly last night. I think I think John Dryden, the 18th century poet or something like that, he believed that the, one of the reasons why Shakespeare killed off Mercutio in this act was because he, he believed Shakespeare couldn't keep up Mercutio's way of speaking. It was too difficult to write as Mercutio, this constant <laughs> outstreaming of very good insults and very good ways of speaking. I think writing Mercutio would have been a lot of fun. Just pouring out all your resentment and just exasperation with all the lovebirds surrounding you and it's just like my god go get a room and if you are going to get a room tell me first we're stuck in that party without you for six hours where the hell did you go romeo um is mercutio's vibe and i love him <laughs> and on you know before we end talking about this act uh, there's one thing from the Shakespeare the Critical Heritage that I want to bring up because it, it does feel relatively modern in how protective it is of certain characters. Where, you know, he's there's a guy called Joseph Ritson in 1783. So he says, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Samuel Johnson, with that candor and politeness for which he is so remarkable, observes that Juliet plays most of her pranks under the appearance of religion. Juliet, little didst thou dream that in addition to thy misfortunes, the unsullied purity of thy angelic mind should at this distance of time be subject to the rude breath of criticism. But rest in peace, sweet saint, thy fair untainted name shall live, live in Shakespeare's page when even the critic's memory is no more. 
And that's us feel. It's like, oh, don't you dare talk about my Moe waifu like that. She is an angel. Don't you dare say that she's awful. <laughs> it, it is It is just too, a bit too protective of a fictional character. A little bit. Yeah, just like, it's, it's just words on a paper, dude. It's fine. Three. Now, we had the happy ending. Now it's time for the unhappy continuance. You know, Romeo's on top of the world. Ah, but then Mercutio and Tybalt get into a duel. Romeo tries to break them up. But either because Romeo interfered or because they were already going to kill each other, the sword slips through and kills Mercutio. And then... Romeo, he's getting very angry. Oh, no, you killed Mercutio. He picks up his sword and he kills Tybalt. But then Romeo runs away. He runs away because, you know, doesn't want the fuzz to catch him. The prince says, Tybalt was my relative too. But, you know, I'm a calm guy. I'm, I know I said I'll kill anyone who kills anyone. But Romeo, he's a young guy. I'm just going to banish him. Romeo is banished from this city. Romeo doesn't know this yet. He, he learns this information later when he's with Friar Lawrence. And to Romeo, banishment is worse than anything because it will move him away from his own wife, from Juliet. But is Juliet's situation any better than Romeo's? No. Because even though one of their family members, Tybalt, has just died, the family, the Capulet family says, you know what we need right now? A marriage. Juliet, in three days, in three days' time, you're going to get married to Paris. Stop crying for Tybalt. He died hours ago. Stop thinking about that. In a few days' time, you're going to get married uh, to Paris. And even though Juliet's crying and saying no, her, her father gets very angry and saying, no, you disobedient girl, you will marry him. I tell you to marry him right now. But luckily, the friar has a plan. He has a cunning plan. Well, first he says, Romeo, you go and stay in Mantua for a while. I'll fix things up. But then he says to Juliet, I think it's in this act. Okay, so actually, no, that, that, that happens in the next act, I think. Where Juliet only gets her part of the plan in the next act. But Romeo and Juliet, they have one last meeting. It's only now, only after, only when Romeo's about to be banished, that they do consummate their marriage. I think Juliet says they've both lost their maiden heads, I think. Which, uh, yes, that's a way of putting it. Yeah, this is the probably the most, I would say, remembered part of... Romeo and Juliet in that it's the most action-packed. Um, Mercutio and Tybalt dies. Um, he gets banished. Like, it's it's the the drum roll, you know? It, yes, it is. It begins with a bag with two people killing each other. And it how the dueling scene plays out is left quite a bit to uh, directors because it can really change how you view it. Because in the first act, I think I said that you don't expect Mercutio to start this fight, although it's not clear whether he starts it or not. Because, you know, you could have Tybalt coming in here with a sword up and, and him sort of aggressing and then Mercutio fighting back. But it does seem like, at least on my reading, that Mercutio, he is the one who is starting this fight, this comedy character. And then there is the matter, I, I said, the marriage between Romeo and Juliet does not directly cause or even cause at all the tragedy of this play. And the quibble on whether it's direct or indirect comes from Romeo putting himself between Mercutio and Tybalt. Because 
One way of viewing this is that Romeo, by being so in love with Juliet, by feeling such love towards the capitalist, by saying, I don't hate you, Tybalt, by throwing himself between them, he messes up their fighting so that Tybalt manages to uh, stab Mercutio. Mercutio would have been fine if Romeo hadn't interfered. He, he's a good fencer, but Romeo, he got in the way. So that would make it indirectly the marriage's fault that uh, the tragedy happens because because of Romeo trying to so lovingly part them, he accidentally makes Mercutio lose his footing and get himself killed. Or it could be that Mercutio always would have been stabbed to death there. Um, but yeah, it's sort of it's sort of, here it's ambiguous whether. Or, but again, this is one of those things where it's open for how the director does it, and this can color how you view the rest of the play. Yeah, I guess um, the indirectness or Romeo trying his best to part the two is, I would argue, where the tragedy comes from. Because, um, like, there's two kinds of tragedy, right, in my head, which is the tragedy happens because the character is who they are and they just cut themselves. Um, like, so Othello versus Hamlet. If Othello was placed in Hamlet's position, he wouldn't have done the the whole rigmarole of putting on a play to make sure if his uncle was feeling guilty, he just stabbed the guy. And Othello would be like, that's it, that's my night, I am avenged, I am going to go to sleep with my beautiful wife and never think about anything ever again. While Let's hope Hamlet, that no one tricks me into killing my beautiful wife. <laughs> yeah, while Hamlet would have Igor whispering in his ear going, I think you mean Iago. Iago, sorry. Uh, That's a very different, a very different. Ah, now here's some fan fiction. What if Hamlet was Victor (laughs) Frankenstein? I know. It is the giant monster that will catch the conscience of the king. Well, yeah, Iago is, you know, whispering in Hamlet's ear going, your wife's cheating on you. And Hamlet would think about it. Hamlet's thinking, I'm not married. (laughs) Yeah, he might. He'll think about it, think about it some more. Maybe play to see if the wife is feeling guilty, and then go, you're lying, and stab Iago in the face. Like, those two plays are tragedies because the main characters can't help being themselves. While there's Romeo and Juliet tragedy, when if in any other circumstance, they would be happy, but because of the way they're born, because of who their parents are, because of who their friends are, they just can't get a break. So Romeo trying to change things by going, hey, guys, stop fighting, please, and gets in the way and makes things worse feels more tragic. It's a tragedy that comes from society. (laughs) It's an inward tragedy or an outward tragedy, you know? It was that Miles Jupp joke where he's a unlikely lines to hear in a detective show. Okay, I think we know who the real killer was here. Society. Mm, oh. Does that make you think? No, that's a terrible murder. I hate it. <laughs> On the note of the fighting, I do like that Romeo has almost a Huckleberry Finn moment. Huckleberry Finn is is with a fleeing slave, and because Huckleberry Finn live, lives in an evil society where slavery is accepted, his conscience is telling him to turn the slave in. But his, you know, his sense of human decency is telling him to help the slave escape. So we have this part where his conscience, it would, one could say his superego, 
his his idea of cultural right and wrong is telling him that he's been a naughty boy for helping a slave escape the slavers. We get something similar in this, where Romeo has been pacif- he's been pacifistic. He's saying, no, stop fighting. We shouldn't fight. I love you all. But then when Mercutio dies, Romeo says, oh, sweet Juliet, thy beauty hath made me effeminate and in my temper softened valor's steel. It is only then that he says, oh, no, I must kill Tybalt. So we get that sort of thing where, no, he was right before. You shouldn't be partaking in this blood fight. You shouldn't be trying to kill people. You shouldn't be going into this back and forth between the houses. Don't do this, Romeo. But now he's thinking, oh, I've been a coward. I should be brave enough to take part in this street fight and kill Tybalt. Well, no, no, you shouldn't. Uh, This is one of those moments where it does seem Romeo has been a bit, he's showing the first signs of the poison of the blood feud. Yeah. Although I just, Mercutio just, I hate how much Mercutio remains kind of un- iconic and dumb, the, even right before his death. Because um, they're in the pub, right? They, they're in a pub, basically. And yeah, it's never quite in. clear where Shakespeare's scenes take place. Uh, maybe on the street, maybe in a pub. Maybe. I don't know. He's, he's so wonderfully dumb. Scene one, just let me find the goddamn scene. I like how he says, a plague on both your houses, they have made worms meat of me. It's like, no, I had nothing to do with this. I mean, I, I raised my side, I fought, but you know, no, it's you, it's your fault. Yeah, and the thing is, like, not to victim blame. No, let's do that, Sophie. <laughs> but yeah, Benvolio, our benevolent shaggy dog of a boy goes i pray thee good mercutio let's retire the day is hot the capulets abroad and if we meet we shall not scape a brawl for now these hot days is the mad blood stirring benvolio specifically says let's let's go home it's so hot out like everyone's on edge it's the capulets are everywhere like let's go home before we get hurt and mercutio is like thou art like one of those fellows that when he enters the confines of a tavern claps me his sword upon the table and says God send me no need of thee, and by the operation of the second cup, draws it on the draw, when indeed there is no need. Benvolio is like, am I like such a fellow? Come, come, thou art as hot as a jack in thy mood as any in Italy, and as soon moved to be moody, and as soon moody to be moved. And what to? Nay, and there were two such we should have none shortly, for one would kill the other. Thou! Why, thou wilt quarrel with a man that hath a hair more, or a hair less in his beard, than thou hast. Thou wilt quarrel with a man for cracking nuts, having no other reason but because he hast hazel eyes. What eye? But such an eye would spy out such a quarrel. Thy head is as fun of quarrels as an egg is full of meat, and yet thy head hath been beaten as addle as an egg for quarrelling. Thou hast quarrelled with a man for coughing in the street, because he hath wakened thy dog that hath lain asleep in the sun. Dost thou not fall out with a tailor for wearing his new doublet before Easter, with another for tying his new shoes with old riband? And yet thou wilt tutor me from quarrelling. And it's like, and I was so apt to quarrel as thou art, any man should buy the fee simple of my life for an hour and a quarter. <laughs> so basically, Mercutio is claiming Benvolio is a quarrelsome fellow that enjoys fighting at a drop of a hat. And Benvolio is basically saying, if I'm that person, you're that, but within half an hour. Like, you're more quarrelsome than me, sir. And also, uh, it's like, it, it does feel a bit like projection. It's... It, it feels... I mean, Benvolio is quite clearly 
a man of the peace. He he told Capulet straight up, draw, st- put your swords up. Don't stop fighting, please. While Tybalt is saying, no, absolutely not. Go die. And Mercutio, the most belligerent, exasperated. And it's, there is a, like a bit of a one of those comedy cuts here where Mercutio's saying, oh, don't you be quarrelsome. And then Tybalt says, uh, gentlemen, good in, a word with one of you. And so he's not actually threatened them at all. He hasn't made, made he hasn't raised the sword. He's just saying a word with you. And Mercutio says, "And but a word with one of us, coupled with something, make it a word and a blow." So he's he just said, "Don't be quarrels, don't be quarrelsome, Benvolio. I'm gonna I'm gonna fight you, Tybalt. You gonna give us a word? I'm gonna punch you in the face." Yeah. And Tybalt, frankly, is just wanting to pick a fight with Romeo. But Mercutio is like, bruh, bruh, you're you're messing with me right now. Don't you talk about my friend Romeo. You're talking with me. And Benvolio is not... He doesn't even need Romeo's name mentioned. He just begins. (laughs) And Benvolio specifically says, We talk here in the public haunt of men, either withdraw under some private place and reason coldly, coldly, of your grievances, or else depart. Here all eyes gaze on us. And Mercutio says, men's eyes were made to look and let them gaze. I will not budge for no man's pleasure. And then Tybalt's like, oh, well, peace be with you, sir. Here comes my man. Romeo enters. And Mercutio says, no, don't you, don't you look away from me. I'm the captain now. It is it is shocking. Like, what, you have this character of Mercutio, Queen Mab speech, the kind of guy who has all these lovely turns of phrase. You think he's like a Noel Fielding kind of person. You don't imagine Noel Fielding just stabbing a guy in the street. No. Like, I think Mercutio has been mischaracterized practically at every turn, maybe. I think he might be a bit more British. He's the guy that punches you a little too hard because, oh, that's what friendship is, isn't it? Like, he sounds, I don't know, he negs people. He's not flouncy. You, like, grab your head and just, just grind his fist in it. because His zaniness, his zaniness comes from a long-term drug addiction. <laughs> yes, he has edges, man. He is edgy. God. I think in the um, Baz Luhrmann version, it is explicitly, a, he, like in the Queen Mab speech, he, he holds up like a pill of ecstasy and says, Queen Mab, on your tongue. But um, on the, like, let, let's, let's move to, uh, so Romeo is banished, the fights happen, lots of violence happens. And what happens <coughs> next in the Capulet family? I imagine there is lots. I haven't read the entirety of the corpus on Romeo and Juliet. There is, a, I assume, there's a lot. Imagine if they only just got around to writing stuff about it. But Capulet says things have fallen out sir, so unluckily that we have had no time to move our daughter. Look, you, she loved her kinsman Tybalt dearly, and so did I. Well, we were born to die. Tis very late. She'll not come down tonight. I promise you. But for your company, I would have you a bed an hour ago. And Paris says. Like, these times of woe afford no times to woo. Madame, good night. Commend me to your daughter. And Capulet's wife says, I will. And know her mind early tomorrow. Tonight she's mewed up to her heaviness. So they are already thinking of marriage. You know, they, previous in a previous scene, they were thinking about marriage with Paris. And I think actually Capulet himself, he directly said, look, she's too young for this. She's too young. We can't go into this at the moment. But now this, I assume there are lots of ways of making this psychologically realistic and psychologically reasonable. Oh, not reasonable, understandable. But we have... None of them seem to care that Tybalt's dead. 
or at least they're trying to sublimate and hide away that. He, he is very dismissive, really. He says, she loved her kinsman Tybalt dearly, and so did I. Well, we were born to die. That is, that's a level of stoicism that just comes as someone not really understanding the magnitude of death. And, and even Paris is saying, look, you're in mourning. I'm not going to try to marry her. But then Capulet's wife says, look, I'll know her mind tomorrow. I'll, I'll talk to her and I'll know about what she thinks of you tomorrow morning. I'll give her tonight tomorrow, but tomorrow I'll know. It, it, I imagine there's lots of arguments of why they become so into overdrive, into getting her married. Not merely just sometime in, the, in three days. They want her married in three days' time. Yeah, it's like, invite her, mark me, on Wednesday next. What soft? What day is this? Monday, my lord. Monday! Ha <laughs> well, Wednesday is too soon. Oh, Thursday, let it be, because a day is different. So it's really emphasising just how absurdly close it is. I, I will say that the way that comes to me that makes me... Uh, you know, justify or make their actions understandable from a psychological perspective is that they do care about Tybalt's death, but they are trying to sublimate that. They're trying to hide away thinking about his death by, you know, just say, let's throw a party, a good party, a happy, a marriage. Let's have a marriage. What's the opposite of a funeral? A marriage. It's to a marriage. Stop thinking about death. Uh, but also, on the, you know, Capula, he's a person who thinks, I am old, my family is dying, I need to have not just the next generation, but the next, next generation. A relative of mine has died because of this blood feud. Juliet, I need you to marry. I need you to start pumping out children. Let's get this done, Juliet. You know what? I kind of agree with you. It's very misguided, but Capulet is, as you said, um, especially with your reading, he's going, all my hopes are buried. And even the one that isn't really a hope just got buried. Like, even the, the bad ones are going now, which begs the question, where is the future? Like... Juliet could have been in the streets right that minute and she would have maybe been collateral damage to that fight. Capulet is going, no, 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 we are not letting this happen. I'm putting my daughter away to a marriage. And on, you know, on Capulet's, Capulet's wife is a different kind of running into this. Like she is, she's a very brief and terse woman. Uh, so it's like Juliet says, Feeling so the loss, I cannot choose but ever weep the friend. And her mother says, well, girl, thou weeps not so much for his death as that the villain lives with slaughter at him. I guess already she's saying, look, why are you crying? I know that you're not crying for his death. How could you cry for his death? No, you're crying because you want to kill Tybalt's murderer. You want to kill Romeo. Uh, That's uh, interesting that Capulet's wife is saying, no, don't think about your sadness over Tybalt's death. No, think of vengeance. Think of murder. His, this isn't even to do with the marriage. This is like, you know, it's actually an interesting view of the blood feud, that this is a blood feud about two warring families. But it's not so much the family of their own that they love as that they hate the other people. Their hate, the hate is more important than family love here. Yeah. It is actually kind of surprising how much you get Capulet's character, despite Lady Capulet's character, despite the fact that she doesn't speak. And probably because she doesn't speak much, we get that impression of even, you know, there, there is that thing where people will, you know, they'll they'll do counting up the words in Shakespeare plays, and as you can expect, women get less words. I do feel that with Capulet's wife, there's like a character reason for this. She is a woman who is, you know, very hard-minded and very terse. She is her character is very brief. And it feels like she has a vision and she's quite stuck on it. Like, I'm going to go all the way back to, like, Act 1 or Act 2 um, when she's talking about Paris. 
is that what say you can you love the gentleman about seeing him for the first time and this night you shall behold him at our feast read oh the volume of young paris's face and find delight writ there with beauty's pen examine every married lineament 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 and see how one another lends content, and what obscured in this fair volume lies find written in the margin of his eyes. This precious book of love, this unbound lover, to beautify him only lacks a cover. The fish lives in the sea, and tis much pride for fair without the fair within to hide. That book in many's eyes doth share the glory that in gold clasps locks in the golden story. So shall you share all that he doth possess by having him making yourself no less. Um... And Lady Capulet just finishes with, speak briefly, can you like of Paris love? And she even says, speak briefly. <laughs> yes, yeah, she is. Uh, she's a no-nonsense woman. She In this Act 3.5, she says, evermore weeping for your cousin's death. What? Wilt thou wash him from his grave with tears? And if thou couldst, thou couldst not make him live. Uh, therefore have done. Some grief shows much of love, but much grief shows still some want of wit. Say, so stop. It's been an hour. It's been an hour since he died. Stop grieving, you silly girl. <laughs> I, I want to get into Juliet here because, you know, just to... I mean, there, there was, some, I forget, some great actress who said that one of the problems with Juliet as a character in a play is not in the writing of her, but it's in the fact that all of the actresses who are of the age to play Juliet are too young to understand her, and those who understand her are too old to play her. Because, I mean, you have to have a pretty abused 13-year-old to understand Juliet. Yeah. She's a 13-year-old girl who is in this situation where she simultaneously needs to uh, hold up under her sadness, scheme her way out of it, as well as try to hide the truth. And she, there are, there's one line she does here where she needs to pretend she's on the family side that she is not married to romeo that she wants him dead even though she de desperately loves him and knows that he is now away from her forever and she needs to you know keep her grief at losing him together with an attempt to even just say the words that she wants him dead like she says indeed i never shall be satisfied with romeo till i behold him a uh, dead dead uh, is my poor heart for so kinsman vexed madam if you could find out but a man to bear a poison, I would temper it that Romeo should upon receipt thereof soon sleep in quiet. So she can't say, she can't say soon drink the poison and die. I, I hope he sleeps in quiet. Oh, how my heart abhors to hear him name and cannot come to him. So it's like, I, I hate to hear him named and not be near him. I want to be near him, to wreak the love I bore my cousin upon his body. To wreak the love I bore my cousin upon... That has two different meanings there. It could be that I love my cousin, therefore I want to show my angry love by killing Romeo. Or it could mean I want to wreak love on his body. I want to be with him physically. Yeah, so, poor baby. And it's going to be difficult to find a 13-year-old girl who can get all of these emotions into one. Yeah. Well, nowadays, CGI exists. Yes, you get a, oh, like Sigourney Weaver in Avatar The Way of Water. Just oh, like, never mind. Forgive me. Yes, get, her playing, get her playing uh, Juliet. But yeah. Um, what do you think about Romeo being such a sop? A little sook? I'd say that my theory, and this is a theory I have less evidence for, but I would say that I do like my uh, Shakespeare professor's view of it was that this is a play about 
the way forward being essentially moving. I mean, Shakespeare wouldn't have known the term toxic masculinity, but he does know that men getting together to beat each other up, that's probably not ideal. You need a better way of being a man than going out into bars and punching each other in the face. So whatever Romeo's doing, where he's just a bit more emotional, where he's crying, where he's thinking about poetry, where he's a bit of a soft boy, that this is probably a better way for men to go than just being pub-fighting arseholes. I mean, yeah. Lawrence, Friar Lawrence is very mean about it, though. He is one of those, I think Romeo says, he can jest at wounds who has never felt them or something like that. Friar Lawrence is one of those people who attaches a stoical view to the world which is oh no don't cry about these things oh this is the way of life oh don't don't show such a sadness for this but it's one of those attitudes you can only have if you're not the one who has the wound he's too reasonable to actually understand how the world hurts people but yeah in act three scene three nurse um, enters his cell and goes where's my lady's lord where's romeo and friar lawrence says there on the ground with his own tears made drunk. <laughs> so mean. I mean, that could be definitely played as a comedy line. Oh, so. It's like, Romeo, you're acting like a goddamn woman. <laughs> Although, like, at least the friar beforehand has a lot of sense in him. Like, Romeo is like, there is no world without Verona walls, but purgatory, torture, hell itself. Hence, banished is banished from the world, and world's exile is death. Then banished is death misturned, calling death banishment. Thou cuttest my head off with a golden axe and smilest upon the stroke that murders me. And Friar Lawrence is like, a deadly sin, a rude unthankfulness. Thy fault our law calls death. But the kind prince, taking thy part, hath rushed aside the law and turned that black word death to banishment. This is dear mercy, and thou seest not. Tis torture and not mercy. Every unworthy thing live here in heaven. But Romeo may not. More validity, more honourable state, more courtship lives and carrier flies than Romeo. And I'm like, oh my god, Romeo, calm your tits. Friar Lawrence is right. <laughs> and I, I do like that he makes this into something, I mean, this is like a sad boy routine. But later on he says, banish it, oh Friar, the damned use that word in hell. And that is a great image where it's like... Yeah, I mean, it's a bit Dante-esque, actually. Like, in in hell, in limbo, the punishment for people in limbo is knowing that heaven exists and knowing that for all of eternity they can never get near it. So he is saying that, look, I have the punishment of people in hell. I know that heaven exists. I know that a place near Juliet exists, but that I will never be there. So that's a very good uh, resonant image. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still hung up on how mean Friar Lawrence is. <sighs> act four, act four. Act four, like act two, it does feel like one of those let's set up the next act scenes, except this time it's setting up the tragedy. And this is the act where we learn what Friar Lawrence's big brain plan is. What he wants is that, Juliet, Juliet, don't kill yourself. Pretend to kill yourself. No, actually, just pretend to be dead. Take this potion. This will make you look dead. So agree to your parents' marriage plans. Then take this potion. 
Then you'll seem to be dead. Then when they bury you, we'll scoop. We'll I'll tell Romeo where you are. He'll come to you, and everything will have a happy ending, Juliet. So Juliet, she does pretend to submit to her father's will. She pretends to uh, say, yes, I will marry Paris. She takes the poison, pretends to be dead. On her wedding day, she's found. And then Friar Lauren says, let's take her to the monument. Let's take her to her to the family tomb. It is a good thing that in Verona, apparently there are no embalming methods. Apparently, they just take the body and take her directly to the to the tomb. No checking anything. Yeah, I mean, he does specifically say, you know, just it'll rob the color from your cheeks. It'll slow your heart rate to such a point that no one will be able to hear it, which begs the question, where is the oxygen in her brain? I mean, it is one of those things where I think it was a real thing that up until relatively recently, like like 19th century, 20th century, it was actually quite difficult to tell when someone was dead. I mean, obviously, if someone's head's cut off, you know he's dead. But there were some edge cases where it's like, oh, is he dead? Is he not dead? It, was, it took some quite big medical breakthroughs to be able to tell for certain whether someone was dead or not. So Act 4, Scene 1, Juliet basically threatens to unalive herself as TikTok has dictated that we need to discuss uh, suicide. And Juliet threatens to do this. And the thing is, Friar Lawrence has already dealt with Romeo going, I will off myself. And Friar kind of did stop that from happening by going, just go to Juliet, go to the reason you live, stare at, stare in that face and go, I will live. Okay. Okay. Good. But Have here, sex with her. That makes a man want to live. <laughs> I wasn't going to say those exact words, but thank you for sparing me from doing that. Um, and now Juliet is coming to him going, hi, I don't want to live. And Friar Lawrence is, is going, okay, I can't do the previous plan because Romeo ain't here. So how about... Like, I can't insult you for being womanish because as much as I hate it, you are a woman. <laughs> and he's so much nicer to her. Like, whole daughter, I do spy a kind of hope which craves... I mean, I, can, I assume that this is sort of benevolent sexism. He doesn't want to yell at a 13-year-old girl. He assumes that a 14-year-old boy, he can handle it, but a 13-year-old girl. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Hold daughter, I do spy a kind of hope which craves as desperate an execution as that is desperate which we would prevent if, rather than to marry County Paris, thou hast the strength of will to slay thyself. That's such an interesting turn of phrase. The strength of will to slay thyself. Then is it likely thou wilt undertake a thing like death to chide away this shame that copest with death himself to escape from it. And if thou darest, I'll give thee remedy. And it's like, sir. It's like, stop burying the lead. Sir, please. And Juliet, she does have sort of a relatively man, I say manly in the sense that both Romeo and Juliet seem to be showing this, you know, ideal of endurance. This kind of idea. I remember reading somewhere that in... In the Renaissance, they were beginning to realize that one of the virtues that they should be praising is not, you know, going out there and fighting people and killing people and being brave because, you know, that's not very Christian, is it? It's not Christian to start killing people for doing wrong things. Christianity is taking the beating. So that's why Stoicism became a bit popular in this time period. Stoicism is about taking a beating. And that is a kind of virtue that both men 
and women can share in because you know a woman's not being unwomanly by taking a beating i i, I should stop saying beating i mean enduring showing endurance and a man can also show endurance and this might tie back to romeo and juliet being a way forward a non-toxic masculinity and a strong femininity showing endurance so one of these lines where juliet says oh bid me leap rather than marry Paris from off the battlements of any tower, or walk in thievish ways, or bid me lurk where serpents are, chain me with roaring bears, or hide me nightly in a charnel house, or covered quite with dead men's rattling bones, with reeky shanks and yellow chapless skulls, or bid me go into a new-made grave and hide me with a dead man in his tomb, things that to hear them told have made me tremble. I will do it without fear or doubt to live an unstained wife to my sweet love. Now that does, this shows she is a strong girl, a strong, enduring, stoic, well not stoical because uh, she's a bit too passionate for that, but she is a girl with uh, endurance, as much endurance as Romeo. Yeah, and um, this is kind of not emphasized, but like rehashed in scene three, when um, she has a monologue to herself, like, I have a faint cold fear thrills through my veins that almost freezes up the heat of life. I'll, I'll call them back to comfort me. Nurse? No, no, what, what should she do here? My dismal scene, I needs must act alone. Come, vile. What if this mixture do not work at all? Shall I be married then tomorrow morning? No, no, this shall forbid it. Lie thou there and just... Just pats, pats a dagger, pats a little dagger next to her. Um, and then, you know, she goes, what if it be poison that the friar um, actually gave her because he wants to cover up his mishap? There's a fearful point. Shall I not then be stifled in the vault to whose foul mouth no healthsome air breathes in and there die strangled air my Romeo comes? Or if I live, is it not very like the horrible conceit of death and night together with the terror of the place as in a vault an ancient receptacle where for these many hundred years the bones of all my buried ancestors are packed? Where bloody Tybalt yet but green in earth lies festering in his shroud where as they say at some hours in the night spirits resort Alack, alack, is it not like that I, so early waking, what with loathsome smells and shrieks like mandrakes torn out of the earth, that living mortals hearing them run mad? Oh, if I wake, shall I not be distraught and violent with all these hideous fears? So, um, she is, I don't want to use the word brave for taking a very dangerous substance that could, you know, very well murder her. But um, she's being very brave here. I mean, she understands the risks, and she is nevertheless going through with it. But on her wedding day, she is found dead. And I do find that this is, again, mixing the optimism and also the tragedy. You know, tragedy, to make it tragic, there has to be hope of life. And it is a sort of weird thing where she is pretending to be dead. The audience knows she's pretending to be dead. So we know, oh, she's actually alive. Ah, but we know this is a tragedy. So eventually she is actually going to die. So it is the hope of revival mixed with, oh, this is a false reprieve. She is going to die. Yeah. For me, even if this had succeeded, what a horrific thing to do to your parents. And to your nurse, who clearly, clearly loves Juliet. And she, Juliet didn't bring her into the plan, probably because nurse 
not reacting this way would be super sus. But what an awful thing to do. And also, I, like, I don't think you can trust this woman to keep a secret. No, absolutely not. And, like, that's just a, even if the plan had worked, she would never be, she would never come back. She cannot come back, not after doing this. It's it is like, one of those things where you assume that maybe 20 years later or 10 years later, they can send a message. That's a sequel, Sophie. You should write that. No. 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 Start researching Renaissance era Verona right now. No, absolutely not. I would rather die. <laughs> Act five, the climax, the tragic climax. Will they have a happily ever after? Some people during the 18th century tried to change the plot so they did get away happily, but no, not in Shakespeare. What happens is that Friar Lawrence, he sent a messenger to tell Romeo, don't worry, Juliet's fine, she's alive. But unfortunately, that messenger got quarantined because there was plague going about, so he couldn't get to Romeo. So Romeo, he hears, oh no, Juliet's dead. Oh, I have to go to her tomb, and then I'll kill myself. He goes to a, a chemist, and he says, chemist, you're a poor chemist, give me poison. And the chemist says, okay, I'll give it to you. Now, Romeo goes straight to Juliet's tomb. And outside of Juliet's tomb, Paris. So he and Romeo, they encounter each other outside the tomb. They get into a fight. And Romeo kills Paris in the scuffle. Romeo goes into the tomb. He sees Juliet there. And says, oh, Juliet. Oh, you're dead. And he drinks the poison and he dies. Juliet wakes up. And she sees, oh, no, Romeo, you're dead. Friar Lawrence comes in and says, Okay, bad things have happened, Juliet. You wait there. You wait right there. And then Juliet says, I better kill myself before anyone comes back. And she kills herself. Then there's such a hue and cry that the Capulets, the Montagues, the Prince, everyone comes and says, what's happened here? What happened here? And the Friar Lawrence says, ah, you caught us. Let me explain what's happened here. And after the Friar reveals that Romeo and Juliet were married, the Prince turns to Montague and Capulet and says, You've been punished enough by what's happened here. I hope you've learned your lesson here, Montagues and Capulets. And it seems, if we're going to take the Montagues and Capulets at their words, that now they're burying the hatchet. Now they are going to have a peaceable relations from now on. Did I miss anything? Yeah, I feel like I, I said like part of me was like, did you mention the fight? I'm not even sure because like it's... This is another case where the marriage doesn't actually cause the... Uh, the tragedy in fact here it's the secret of the marriage that is causing further tragedy because paris he doesn't know that romeo is married to juliet he knows nothing about that so he just thinks wait this is the guy this is the montague who murdered tybalt oh i know what he must be doing he's here to vandalize the grave i'd better start fighting him right now i mean if he knew that actually romeo was married to juliet maybe this ending tragedy could have been averted maybe yeah that's true um I'd never really, like, been very convinced by Paris and his affection for Juliet, but this reading has made me go, okay, maybe, yeah, maybe it's quite sincere, because as far as I was concerned, Paris had really only met Juliet at the party, but no, like, Paris is interested in Juliet beforehand. Yes, I think and... explicitly, he has known Juliet for far longer than uh, Romeo has. Yeah, 
So um, I, I think in my previous readings, I didn't really pick up on that detail because, you know, I was being forced to read it. So I didn't really care. Or maybe I thought it was done out of obligation. But yeah, no, Paris sincerely loves Juliet. And it's just like, I'm here to say goodbye to the person that I was meant to get married to today. And yeah, so having that fight, it makes sense. And it's tragic because it's like, communication, guys. It's, I hate saying this, but it almost feels like a, a rom-com movie where um, people are yelling at the screen, if you just communicated and avoided these stupid, dumb misunderstandings, everything would be fine. Except at least in this play, all of the misunderstandings are perfectly justified. And, oh, Friar Lawrence, you idiot. <laughs> and he comes just at the last moment. I think that there was, I mean, actually, I think we should maybe speak about Romeo's character. That I think it's, it's like Darth Vader, grief is turning him to the dark side. Because Romeo's language in this last act, thinking that Juliet's dead, he does become quite, you know, angry, quite uh, abrasive to other people with the apothecary. Like, this is a guy he wants a favour from. And he's saying, art thou so bare and full of wretchedness and fears to die? Famine is in thy cheeks, need and oppression starveth in thy eyes. Contempt and beggary hangs upon thy back. The world is not thy friend, nor the world's law. The world affords no law to make thee rich, then be not poor, but break it and take this. So this is not the kind of Roma we've met before. He's just saying, you poor bastard, go on, give me the poison, give me it now. <laughs> You get the sense that he, he is just so full of grief that he's just going to take it out on anyone he possibly can right now. And Apothecary was like, yeah, no, I, I can't say no to this money, so I'll take it. And then, Romeo, I pay thy poverty and not thy will. And I'm just... Uh... So in Japan, like, there's little, like, a few small gods, you know? And there is such a thing as a poverty god, a bimbo gummy. Um, not a bimbo. <laughs> I would high five you so hard. God damn it, that's really good. Oh my god. Um, and you can, and as an insult, you can call people yakubyogami, um, which is like a person that brings misfortune because they are the god of misfortune and ill health. And you can so like for my Japanese mind immediately like conjured an image where Romeo was paying the the poverty god hanging on the apothecary's shoulder like a little cursed poor monkey just going hey, hey, yes <laughs> that's that's really all I wanted to say there is thy gold worse poison to men's souls doing more murders in this loathsome world than these poor compounds that thou mayest not sell I sell thee poison thou hast sold me none Farewell, buy food and get thyself in flesh. Come, cordial and not poison. Go with me to Juliet's grave, for there I must use thee. Yeah, Romeo is not okay. But yeah, also, we... There's another part where you get his sort of violent turn of mind. Like he's gone with Balthazar to the, to the grave and he's saying, Therefore, hence be gone. But if thou, jealous, dost return to pry in what I father shall intend to do by heaven, I will tear thee joint by joint and strew this hungry church out with thy limbs. That is, I, I'm just trying to help you, master. <laughs> it's like, geez, okay, tetchy, and goes away. Well, at least Romeo kind of, like, gives Paris a near pass. 
He's like, put uh, another so sin upon my head by urging me to fury. But I he love- basically goes, you know, stay and I will kill you. Go and I'll let you go. Actually, he doesn't even know it's Paris, actually, at this point. He's, I beseech thee, youth. Uh-huh. Put not another sin upon my head by urging me to fury. Oh, be gone by heaven. I love thee better than myself, for I come hither armed against myself. Stay not, be gone, live, and hereafter stay. A madman's mercy bid thee run away. Then Romeo does know that he is a bit, uh, he's going a bit dodgy right now. Yeah. I do defy thy conjurations and apprehend thee for a felon here. Oh, dear Paris, you were definitely in the right. <laughs> what does Friar Lawrence exactly say to Juliet when she wakes up? Uh, I hear some noise. Lady. Come from that list. What blood is this that stains the stony entrance of this sepulchre? What mean these masterless and gaudy swords to lie discoloured by this place of peace? Romeo, oh, pale, who wells? What, Paris too? And steeped in blood, ah, what unkind hour is guilty of this lamentable chance? Juliet rises. The lady stirs. Oh, comfortable, friar, where is my lord? I do remember well where I should be. And there I am. Where is my Romeo? Fry Lawrence says to her, I hear some noise, lady, come from that nest of death and contagion and unnatural sleep. A greater power than we can contradict hath thwarted our intents. Come, come away, thy husband in thy bosom there lies dead in Paris too. Come, I'll dispose of thee among a sisterhood of holy nuns. Stay not to question, for the watch is coming. Come, go, good Juliet, I dare no longer stay. Like, no, no, don't you? It is... It is, he's dropping a lot on her as she's just woken up. Yeah. And part of me is like, is he saying, all right, no, we're, we're going to a nunnery because I need to dispose of the evidence. Like, come, I'll dispose of thee among a sisterhood of holy nuns. Stay not to question for the watch is coming. Come, go, good Juliet. I, I dare no longer stay. It is. It, it... I mean, at, to give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe it's like, let's temporarily keep you in a, in a, in a group of nuns just so that uh, we can, you know, uh, live out the heat. Wait until the heat dies down, then come back. <laughs> it's like, he's like, look, I don't know what's going on either, okay? We, we just need to go. We just need to go right now. On the ending, it does feel, it's one of those endings where if, if people had just been a bit slower or a bit faster then maybe the ending could have been averted. Like, if the friar had come just a few seconds, just a few seconds later, maybe he he could have told Romeo, no, don't do that, Romeo. Maybe if uh, Juliet had woken up a bit earlier, this would have been averted. Maybe if uh, the, the friar had not left the tomb with Juliet and her knife by her side, or you know, with Romeo's dagger by her side, maybe she would have been fine. I think there was one, there's, I have, from the Critical Heritage... I have this guy called Lord Keynes, and he's 1762. He's one of those people who says, no, Shakespeare, we need to cut him down to size. He wasn't all good, and he really took issue with this ending, which was, when a person of integrity, so yada, 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 when protagonist suffers an end under misfortunes purely accidental, we are part discontented with some obscure sense of injustice. So chance, So he's saying that we shouldn't have. We are vexed at the unlucky chance and go away unsatisfied. Okay. So I give the example of Romeo and Juliet of Shakespeare, where the fatal catastrophe is occasioned by Friar Lawrence's coming to the monument a minute too late. 
wheel vexed at the unlucky chance and go away dissatisfied. Such impressions which ought not to be cherished are a sufficient reason for excluding stories of that kind from theatre. The misfortune of a virtuous person arising from necessary causes or from a chain of unavoidable circumstances are considered in a different light. A regular chain of causes and effects directed by the general laws of nature never fails to suggest the hands of providence. In short, a perfect character suffering under misfortunes is qualified for being the subject of pathetic tragedy, provided chance be excluded. So he really he said this isn't fit for the theatre. This is there's too much luck involved in this. They're, you know, I think earlier we were saying that, oh, we can perfectly well understand the misunderstandings. This does seem like circumstance is pushing them towards this tragedy. Whereas this guy is saying the ending sort of loses that. In this ending, there's too much luck involved here. We just feel, oh, this isn't right. This is this could have been averted if one character had gotten there a bit later. I mean, it's not just the one character though, is it? Because um it's a chain of events that essentially is a daisy chain of if onlys. You know, if only the dude hadn't been stuck in quarantine and the letter had arrived on time. If only the apothecary had been abnormal apothecary and said, hey, we're not, we don't sell bad drugs here. I'm going to get the watch and have them put you in prison overnight. And that might have saved the day. Um, and then you have, what if, if only Paris hadn't been there? Or maybe if only Romeo had realized it was Paris and went, oh no, I can't kill this dude because that's another Capulet Montague shenanigans head upon my hands and I can't do that anymore. And then yes, you have, if only Friar had arrived a little bit sooner if only Romeo had waxed a bit more poetic around Juliet's corpse. How about that? If only Juliet hadn't dithered, worrying that the poison was poison, she might have woken up sooner as well. There's a lot of if onlys. It's not just the one. And now for let's let's discuss the the ultimate upshot of this play, where the princess. I think the, the prince has a lovely line. See what a scourge is laid upon your hate, that heaven finds means to kill your joys with love. And I, for winking at your discords too, have lost a brace of kinsmen. All are punished. And that's a lovely line. A means to kill your joys with love. That is a really good line, genuinely. But the ending, I'd say that the surface level ending and maybe the actual ending is that Capulet and Montague, like Capulet says, oh, brother Montague, give me thy hand. This is my daughter's jointure for no more can I demand. And Montague says, but I can give thee more. For I will ray her statue in pure gold. And while Verona by that name is known, there shall be no figure at such rate be set as that of true and faithful Juliet. And Capulet says, as rich shall Romeo's buy his lady's lie for sacrifices of our enmity. Now, this, I mean, the, the surface reading of this and maybe the actual reading would be, ah, the, the one good thing that came out of this, the friar was sort of right, that their marriage ended the strife. Now these families are saying, let's stop fighting each other now. Although I would say that quite, there are at least one or two, and I assume many different stage productions, they make this ending bit a bit more lip service. It's like, oh, these are just 
people who are, we're going to spend a few thousand dollars on a statue, but nothing really has changed here. We're just going to keep on fighting each other, but we're going to pretend we've learned our lesson. Uh, it depends on how cynical you are, I suppose, how you view this ending. I mean, I'm going to be very mean and say Capulet kind of doesn't have a choice anyway. He's lost his only heir. His family's going to die out. The yeah. feud might just die with him and his family. <laughs> Montague's oh. won by just outliving their enemy. That was Romeo and Juliet, a masterpiece. I think we can agree, Sophie, a masterpiece. Do you agree this was a masterpiece, Sophie? Okay, it has masterful scenes, but it is not a masterpiece in my mind. When I was reading, you know, I am, when we read these plays, I do try to make even Shakespeare's B works. I try to find the best in them. I try to justify them. Titus Andronicus, Comedy of Errors, Love's Labour's Lost. But there is something about when you get to Richard III, when you get to Romeo and Juliet, you realize, oh no, these are, every line is brilliant. It is, just reading this, I was, I was just saying, oh, this is why Shakespeare is remembered. Yeah, I definitely felt that for Richard III, but for, I don't know why, like, I'm so cagey about wholeheartedly liking Romeo and Juliet. Probably because, because, like, no, I genuinely don't know. I just, like, maybe it's just not my play because it's not my vibe. I really liked uh, the first one, the the long, the one that was done by David Tennant, the sad boy, the saint, the one before Richard III, the shepherd, the shepherd king. What is his name? Henry VI. Henry VI. Like, in terms of tragedy, I much enjoyed, like, um, part two and three of Henry VI because, I guess, melancholy is more my vibe. And I liked the, the vibe and just generally the story of Comedy of Errors because, um, A, it was funny. B, when it was being heartfelt, it was melancholy. And I think I'm just more drawn towards that kind of of play than something so hot-blooded and desperate and a little bit hysteric as Romeo and Juliet. Maybe sincerity is anathema to me, but um, no, I'm just more of a melancholy person and just Romeo and Juliet doesn't hit that for me. I am a person who likes melancholy. I like a pat I also like passionate suffering. I am a type of person who Having no suffering in my own life. Must... <laughs> Carry on. I also, I've hinted at it in previous podcasts, but I was born without the ability to love, quite fortunately. So I also must live that vicariously through others. <laughs> uh, I do like great. romance. I prefer a tragic romance because... I need some, it's, it's like you, you can't have too much sugar. You need to take the edge off with something. So, mm. yeah, I, yeah, I like this and I do, uh, and I, I did mention that I tried to move past my high school era. Oh, this isn't about love. This is, this is about hormonal tea and Shakespeare's judging their love. 
I, I do view this as being quite an effective love story. Hot take. Hot take. Romeo and Juliet is a love story. That's a hot take. You're going to find lots of disagreement. <laughs> oh, such a hot take. Ooh, would burn my hand on that. Got to run it under tap water. But nevertheless, yes, I did. Yeah, I, li- I like that. But one, what? Well, let's just say, Sophie, was one thing you didn't like. One thing I didn't like. I mean, that is also quite hard too, because like I, I don't love this play. This will never be my favorite Shakespeare play. To be honest, it used to be um, uh, the Tempest, just because it's the shortest one. But yeah, that might <laughs> comedy of errors might actually top it at this moment, just because it it just hits my it just tickles me. Um, what I didn't like, I don't like that I can't find anything that I don't like about it, because if I if I had something that just made that I could point at and go, I don't like this, I can s- sort of use that as a justification for why I don't feel this poem. Not that that. So in a way, your feelings about I like the I like the grudge of the two families. They can't really tell why they hate each other anymore. It's just sort of a feeling. <laughs> yes, uh, that's what uh, apparently it's called generational trauma. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yes yeah, so your mother hated romeo and juliet and so it's inside of you now yes deep in your heart in your stomach the soul is in the spine baby um anyway <laughs> yeah no nah, okay i will sometimes i didn't like the nurse mostly just because she felt like she didn't exist in the correct play you know, she's like, she's a little too human compared to everyone else. Like she just has, she has a more fleshy, more like rounded quality to her where everyone else is so heightened. Like um, Lord Capulet, so like angry and um, Tybalt, so angry. Mercutio, so angry, but all different flavors of angry. And um, you, then you have fucking nurse just, you know, going, oh, yes, I'm just I'm just getting my ha- my breath back as I try to tell you about your hot boy. But good Lord, just give me a second. I've been on my feet this whole time. Like she's the most human and normal and reasonable person in this play. And that's why she I sometimes think, it doesn't feel like she fits. I think this you might be the first person to complain about the nurse for being too down to earth, too realistic, too naturalistic a picture of humanity. <laughs> uh, yeah, some I just don't feel she fits sometimes. Just get with the vibe, nurse. But anyway, so what I didn't like about this, I actually can't think of anything I didn't like about it. It is, I mean, this is just one of his masterpieces. I, hmm. I'd need to think about uh, more Montagues. Show us them. What's going on there? I mean, I understand maybe that will make the plot flabbier, but they're part of this awful grudge as well. Show us them. And one thing that you liked about this. One thing that I liked. I liked the new view I had of Mercutio. Just like, because every, and by every iteration, um, I do mean just the one movie starring um, Leonardo DiCaprio as as um, Romeo. Although there have been a few um, just Mercutio pl- clips that I've seen on the internet with the Queen map. 
monologue, that's the word I was looking for. Um, he's, you know, he's very dreamy. He's very like, she's so cool. When really, he, he's, a, he's such an upset boy. He's so funny in that like he's just so exasperated and done with with Romeo and he uses that monologue to neg him for being such a soppy little sook boy and that was great I really enjoyed my new Mercutio <laughs> headcanon my turn what did I like I liked Again, it's we've already read these plays before, so some of the things we like will just be reassessments of what we thought we knew. I did like noticing that Romeo and Juliet, it is sort of love at first sight, but they don't see each other. They're in masks, so it's dark, which allows me to have my theory, my interpretation that this is a kind of mystical union they're having, a deeper than physical connection at first blush. Perhaps this is my... Romantic soul, Sophie. You know my romantic soul. I am afraid to touch it. Oh. <laughs> I suspect that your romantic soul is a little bit like a scene in it. That if I try to touch it, it'll like go onto my finky and I'll be like, no, no, wait, I didn't like that for you disturbing you. my love, Please. Sophie. <laughs> Please, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for disturbing you. Have some plankton. I'll go away now. I'm sorry. <laughs> But, ah, oh, but next time, next time, Sophie, we are, of course, doing the entire 26-episode Romeo x Juliet anime. No arguments, Sophie, we're watching it. What? <laughs> you don't know about the mecha anime, Romeo x Juliet? There's a mecha anime? But, but, but seriously, folks, next time... I said last time we were going to be doing Tis Pity She's a Whore after Romeo and Juliet, which is the, in Romeo and Juliet, the problem is the families are too far apart. But in Tis Pity She's a Whore, the problem is that the families are the same family, they're brother and sister. I'm going to give you a bit of grace, Sophie, not going to do that one immediately. Next time, we're not even doing a play. We're going to be doing five sonnets. Five little sonnets. 14 lines, Sophie. What's 5 times 14, Sophie? It's 70 lines, I think. Yes. And not, we're not going to just be doing Shakespeare's, because remember, Shakespeare and pals. We like to contextualise. We like to see what other people were doing. So we're, go we're going to be doing two of Shakespeare's poems, one of Sir Thomas Wyatt's poems. Sir Thomas Wyatt's a person who really introduced the sonnets to England doing one of Richard Barnesfield's poems, a guy who made it a bitter, made the sonnet a bit gay. Lovely gay, lovely homoeroticism. Uh, and also one by Sir Philip Sidney. Sir Philip Sidney, one of the great poets of the Elizabethan era, one who famously wrote a defense of posy, where he defended... Essentially, his defense of poetry was that people say that poets lie. No, actually, we tell you it's fictional, so you're never deceived. The historians, they tell you it's truth, and so they can't help but lie. That's a hot take. I like it. But just so you readers know what we're going to be reading next time, I'll resummarize that. So we're reading Sir Thomas Wyatt's Who So List to Hunt, 
I know where it is an eye. Richard Barnfield's Sonnet 17. Cherry lipped Adonis in his snowy shape. Lovely boy love. Not boy love, man love. Uh, Sir Philip Sidney. Stella, since thou so right a princess art. And Shakespeare were doing Sonnet 10, Sonnet 55. Why did I choose those? Did I just look on Poetry Foundation and pick the first ones that popped up on the poetry list? Yes. <laughs> a good methodology. So we're not diving deep into this. We're not trying to... There are some podcasts. I, for, the, for this podcast, we're trying to give you... For Shakespeare, we're trying to give you something a bit beyond the Wikipedia page. But for these poets, you've never heard of these poets. We're just going to give you the first thing you'll know about them. Please listen. Please. Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Powell. A list of references to the work cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.